And I already screwed it up. Why? Because I was supposed to go, hey, on this week's episode of the Plain Talk podcast, I go to an air show and Matt and I fly cross country twice. Hi, and welcome back to Plain Talk podcast. I'm Matt. I'm Rob. I'm definitely not Rob, and he's definitely not Matt, so I think we're pretty good there. Yeah, we've got that squared away. All right, check. I got it. Check, check. I'm clear. Uh, oh, that's a funny one. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> this day in aviation, June 23rd, 1961, Major Robert Michael White, United States Air, Spor- Air-, Air Sports. Air Sports. <laughs> that's an official branch of the military. <laughs> now we have a Space Sports. <laughs> Oh, God. United States Air Force became the first pilot to exceed Mach 5 in an aircraft. It was the 38th flight of the X-15 program. Matt, what is Mach 5? Uh, what is Mach? About th- 3,000 miles per hour. Not the numbers. <laughs> Be closer to 3,500 miles per hour. That was a good guess, though. Yeah. Tell us about it, Rob. Mach is a measurement of the speed of sound. So if you're going Mach 1, you are traveling at the speed of sound. Mach 2, twice the speed of sound. Mach 3, three times the speed of sound. And the speed of sound is roughly 700 to 750 miles per hour, give or take a couple at sea level. And the speed of sound goes down with a decrease in temperature. So as you go up in the atmosphere, you actually may be going the same indicated speed on the airplane but as compared to the actual speed of sound for the temperature of the air that you're in you may be going uh, very much multiples of the speed of sound which is why felix baumgartner who jumped out of a out of a balloon from the edge of space from over a hundred thousand feet was the first man to break the sound barrier just by himself because the air was so thin and so cold up there that when uh, he was uh, free-falling from this balloon. He was actually going faster than the speed of sound in that very thin air. And then as the air thickened, he, he decelerated and slowed down um, to uh, his own, uh, to um, uh, what's it called, terminal velocity. Um, and of, of a human is about 100 and 140 miles an hour or so, somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. But way up high where the air is really, really cold and really, really thin, the speed of sound may actually be only 140 miles an hour. Whereas down here at sea level where the air is nice and thick and it's nice and warm, it's about 700 miles an hour. So yeah, Mach 5 is pretty cool. And, and the, the X-15 was doing that up at, up at high altitudes. And it was a rocket-powered aircraft dropped from, I believe, a B-52. Huh. <laughs> Did I just randomly spout some knowledge that you, you were ready say. for? <laughs> I, I mean, we're like about a minute and a half into the episode, but it was really good information. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. It was good. Um, interesting. Interesting. I, I, I always knew Mach was the speed of sound. I was, I actually thought it was closer to the 600 range, which is why... Depending on I altitude. Said, yeah, but that's good to know, depending on altitude. Cool. Mm-hmm. Or really, it's based on temperature. I got to get that right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's based on temperature. And well, temperature typically changes as you increase in altitude. Yes. It uh, typically drops two degrees per Celsius per thousand feet in the troposphere. Then you hit the tropopause. And that is an area where you're separating from the troposphere to the stratosphere. And the temperature there actually stays stagnant. It's the same as you go up 
per thousand feet, then you may get a slight rise in temperature in the stratosphere, or maybe that's in the ionosphere. Um, but in between each layer of the atmosphere, you have a pause where the temperature doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't change. So what's that thing when I was going through my student pilot, uh, you know, onboarding online, and they said average out to about 1.5 is that, is that okay. temperature changes? All right. So now we're going Here down the wormhole go. because we have dry adiabatic lapse rate and wet adiabatic lapse rate. Is and it? what we typically describe as two degrees per thousand feet is the dry adiabatic lapse rate. So that's a parcel of air that doesn't have a moisture content to it. So when you add moisture, you it's like adding insulation and resistance to change. So you get less change per thousand feet. Gotcha. Yeah. But generally we say two degrees per thousand feet. Gotcha. Interesting. Yep. Cool. So, Rob, when are you getting your uh, your seaplane? You mean, um, uh, well, I, I want to get it by this fall. No, I mean your actual seaplane. Oh. So, so Rob has a, <laughs> Rob has what I, I, people claim is a river. It's a river. <laughs> it's on the chart. As a, it's on charts. It's on maps. All right. I mean, I guess you call it a river. It's in my backyard. And we, we keep talking about it. It's about 50 feet out his back door and you know now that he has a longer commute he could literally just walk outside i would love it get into a seaplane take off and you know be at work in what 15 20 minutes tops uh yeah it'd probably be about 20 25 minutes instead of the hour and 45 minute commute that i've got now that would be awesome uh and in order to do that it would really help us if we had some sponsors so if you're interested in sponsoring the plane talk podcast please shoot us a mail an email to <laughs> podcast email? <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so shoot us an email podcast at plane talk podcast.com uh we currently have an outreach uh, our total outreach so far is over four thousand people which is awesome point. that's unique people that is yeah. amazing and uh, we're, we're really excited to be to be able to to reach out and and have um have that that much of an audience and yeah. and heck if there's four thousand uh, of you out there listening to us you know feel free to drop us a line we've we've already heard from australia and we, and we hear from from people in the that we interact with on a daily on a daily basis but yeah let's uh don't be don't be shy in fact i have a challenge for our listeners um, challenge so one thing i've learned is that the less you request of people the more likely they are to help you out Oh, well, don't, don't so, send us any money. So, don't send us blank checks. No, 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 no. You don't have to do... <laughs> no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. So I challenge our listeners to email podcast at plaintalkpodcast.com. So, so you don't even have to say like, hey, I'm from whatever, whatever, whatever. Just shoot us like five or ten words, just what you think of the podcast. We would love that. We would love to know as long as we receive your email. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah, and if you can come up with a fun aviation haiku, that'd be pretty neat. Yeah, actually, that would be... Be okay with that. Yeah. And, um, we we would even feature it in our next episode with permission. I think that we could say we could do that. Well, yeah. now they're now the shy people aren't going to write in. Oh, we don't have to feature it. Don't hide you can make one of your words. Bushel. Don't share. Yeah, two of your words. Don't share. Don't the share. Rest could be that <laughs> there is no word limit. Anyway, so Rob, I was thinking of five second films just now. Right? Talking about yeah, send us right? ten, ten words. I'm thinking yeah. five second films or or or. 10 second sentences. I don't know. 10, ten word sentences. 10 second sentences. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Rob, you're not getting a seaplane anytime soon, but you no. are considering getting your seaplane rating. Yes. Tell us about that. Uh, spend money, go someplace that has it and uh, be done. Yeah. But 
So for our listeners, they see seaplanes and they wonder, why do you need a specific rating for a seaplane? It kind of looks the same as the airplanes I see landing at my local airport, except it has little floats instead of wheels. So what's the difference? Yeah, apparently joining an airplane to water is a whole lot more difficult than joining an airplane to land. I'm hoping that there's a lot of carryover between um, the tailwheel flying that I do and the the skills that I have in in that regime uh, and and doing some of the... uh, doing some of the seaplane stuff but um i really don't know all that much about seaplane flying because i guess i i don't have the the license and rating um but it's definitely something that i've i've looked at and really been interested in mainly if not for the 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 fun of it, but also for the flexibility and utility of it. Um, there are some places around the Boston area. I know there's a location up in Maine that has an Apache on floats, and it's the only one in the world. Um, there's some places in Connecticut that do seaplane ratings as well. And my buddy Tyler went down to Jack Brown's in Florida, and he did a two-day course out there where the first day was uh, all training. And then the second day, you did a training flight on your way to the examiner's. And you land at the examiner's place, you get out, you do the oral portion, then you do the flight portion, and then you're done. You fly home. Nice. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's actually rather inexpensive. It's, it's rather affordable. Now, when you think about the way that people travel, uh, they travel by air, they travel by car on roads, they travel by trains on train tracks, they travel by boats on water. So you will have landed on a road, <laughs> you will have landed on water. <laughs> you're you're already in an airplane so you've already you're going to have landed blah, 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 blah. you're going to have landed on a runway numerous times yeah. so the only thing left is landing on train tracks uh which i'm really hoping to avoid however i could see an air show performance if there right. was a if where there the was wheels a, lined up right with the well tracks. no 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 i wouldn't do that i wouldn't do that i'd do something like what um and uh, talk about Greg Koontz does where they built a platform onto a pickup truck and they drive the pickup truck down the runway and they land on the platform on top of the pickup uh, truck. I would put a platform on a train and then have the yeah. train. It would have to be an airport that had train tracks right by it you know, so people could see it or we'd have to film it, get some sponsorship from Red Bull. Red Bull! It gives you wings. Uh, we'd, have to, we'd have to get some Red Bull. Your, 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 your future account balance with us is now negative one thousand dollars. Why are we stopping there? We'll mention it seventeen. We'll do an entire episode just Red Bull, Red Bull, Red Bull, Red Bull, yeah, Red Bull, Red yeah. Bull, Red Bull. Yeah. Um, But yeah, land on a train. I think that'd be pretty neat. And it's it's not something that I think has been done before, other than in video games. I know I've done that in Grand Theft Auto. Um, only play that if you're over eighteen. Something something. Uh, but still, yeah, I've, that's something that I haven't seen in real life before. And and uh, someone who wants to be an air show performer, hey, yeah, maybe uh, maybe I'll work on trying to do that someday. You said the magic word someday, if nope. when air show air show. Yeah, let's talk about the air show you went to. It's like a segue. <laughs> Boom. Not the. Uh, <laughs> not, the, no. not the personal mobility no. device. Dean Kamen, he lives up the street. It's Kamen? Dean? Oh, I forgot his name. Yeah, Kamen. Oh, now I From what Google. I heard, d- didn't they believe that this was going to be like the future of transportation, that people were going to be using these things he did, all and over, the, and, and now they're just used for tours? Yeah. Which, which is, it was just still great. Still yeah. pretty good, and uh, small security guards. Um, 
the original purpose of the device was actually to increase the mobility of uh, people that are in I'm sorry, did you just say small security guards? No, mall. Oh, I thought, yeah. you, I thought you said small Don't security guards. Don't run away from guards. me. Get back here. <laughs> like, got I was like, what about up? big security guards? Oh. It's like George Carlin when he says, well, what if my kid has a pituitary disorder <laughs> flying on an airplane? If you haven't listened to flying on an airplane, oh, wait, if I uh. recommend this, it's... Never mind. I'm not allowed to rec- recommend this because it's... George Carlin, if you're 18 or over, unless you're watching him in uh, Thomas the Tank Engine or Shining Time Station, whatever it was, he was the conductor. He was Mr. Conductor in that. But anyway... Okay. Okay. On. Hold on. We have gotten so badly sidetracked here. Nope. Go ahead. That's Air amazing. show. Okay. So, hold on. The The original purpose of the Segway was a, a device that would make it easy for people in wheelchairs to climb stairs. And it's an autonomous, gyroscopically balanced uh, wheelchair. It was really supposed to revolutionize the wheelchair and the technology that's out there is actually really really powerful he can uh the stuff that he's built now and has not quite got fda no not FDA, yeah fda approval for um can actually give a paralyzed person the ability to stand using this gyroscopically balanced multi-wheel device uh to give them the freedom back to move around in their own homes go up and down stairs and also just to reach up into the to the cupboards and top shelves of things and um, i was at a presentation he did where he was in this device for an hour with it in the elevated uh position on two wheels and the thing just gently rocked back and forth as he wanted to move and he leaned and it wasn't the hand controls it wasn't the way that the the segway operates um but it was it was very it was like a weight shift and then he did his whole presentation on the thing and it was it was That's really amazing. cool but anyway air show it's amazing <laughs> okay so the quonset air show was uh not this past weekend or was it this past weekend i am now losing track um but yeah, the Blue Angels came down to Quonset, Rhode Island, and a bunch of other performers were there. And, and for this being a small show, I thought they did an outstanding job. So the video that was posted to our Facebook page, and I believe we put it on our YouTube as well. Um, and if it's not, we'll, we'll upload that too. Uh, the video that I posted, I was there with my company, Horizon Aviation, and we were basically doing our own advertising and selling of the company and, and talking ab- uh, to people about how to become pilots and uh, a little bit about airplane ownership and, and what we do as a school. And then uh, in some of the downtime, I was able to walk around and enjoy some of the vendors and the displays that were there and also the air show performers. So we had Sean D. Tucker, who uh, I grew up watching when he was in the 1010-220 airplane and the 1-800-collect airplanes of the 1990s. Uh, now he's in his 1010 was way better than 1010-220. They had all kinds of those 1010 321 was the bomb. Oh, well. My, my grandma swore by it. I'm going to believe you. Yeah. I, I remember using a couple of them. I couldn't tell you what they were now though because they've they've all gone away there was also a phone number you could call you'd listen to an advertisement for like 30 seconds and then they would give you a minute of talking time for every 30 second advertisement that you listened to yeah that one i'm not familiar with i forget what it was called have to use the almighty and then there was like 800 free 411 that was that was there Mm. for a while you listened to an advertisement then they anyway keep going yeah uh and then so let's see what else did they have here they they had a t-33 shooting star uh, which was one of the first jet trainers for the u.s military and it actually put on a really awesome show it's a jet it's fast. It's not so loud that you have to wear hearing protection. And uh, the 
the pilot that was flying it actually did an outstanding job. Um, in addition to them, Michael Goulian was there, so he was the hometown hero from just up the road in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and he had his whole truck there and the chalet and the, his whole display. And um, everybody did all the displays except for the Blue Angels, did a morning show, which was about half of their sequence and routine. And then in the afternoon, they did a second show, which was their full performance and their full routine. And what that worked out to be was this really awesome, well-paced, full-day show. There was never really a period where there wasn't something in the air, whether it was a C-130 or the F-35. There were a handful of P-51s there, an F-4U Corsair, the Heritage flight did a demo with an F-16 flown by Major Rainwaters, um, and uh, really just awesome stuff. There was a I think the the CF-18 was there as well. Uh, and then the Piste de Resistance, the Blue Angels, the Navy flight demonstration team putting on an awesome, awesome performance. And I have seen them many times throughout the year. They absolutely put on the best show, and um, they did not disappoint on this one. And I actually thought the performance was uh, tighter than any I've seen in, in recent memory. And you can... There are some trade secrets that aren't really secrets uh, that you can you can tell when they're out of position. They will actually do something special um, because they video record all their shows and then they debrief them later to talk about, OK, where were you here? What did this look like? Was this a safety issue? Was this fine? What can you do next time? How can we mitigate this? And they do a really nice job of uh, make, making sure that they maintain a high level of safety for, for the shows. And um they they park really close to the crowd line and everybody could come come up and see him and talk to the pilots afterwards and um seeing as how i was at this point two and a half hours away from home i stayed after the show broke down our display site and then i went over to michael gullian's uh, chalet and i helped break down their uh their their site um because when i i, I worked for him for a weekend in 2015 i was familiar with everybody who was on the crew i was familiar with the teardown and and uh knew how how much many hands helped that process and and so it was great to to see everybody again and and to do something useful rather than just sit in traffic for that two hours and by the time we were done tearing down traffic was gone it was an easy ride home nice you didn't get to fly there and back no uh the airplanes were already there uh when i got there so i only worked the sunday show and they were going to stay there until i believe they were leaving on tuesday uh and i did i did fly down to quonset though on monday with a student um no it was tuesday did fly down on tuesday with a student doing instrument work doing an instrument approach and the blue angels were still there so they had done uh some community work in the area going to some of the local schools and and meeting with kids and and uh performing the mission of the united states navy flight demonstration team and and that is uh that is recruitment and this uh, might be did an awesome job this might be an obvious question but how many blue angels are there Okay, so not an obvious question. Um, you have the six flight demonstration pilots, and they have their numbers one, two, three, four, five, six. One is the boss, so he's the overseer of the team. He is the leader of the team. Uh, two is the left wing, three is the right wing, and four is the slot pilot. So if, if you can imagine them in a diamond, uh, number one will be at the tip, two and three will be out at the sides and then four is tucked in behind in the middle right behind number one and just a little back in between two and three then you have uh, five and six five and six are the solo 
and opposing solo pilots, they go out and they break off from the the diamond to f- perform their own routines where they showcase the one-on-one performance of the jet. And while the, the diamond is going around and showing the high level of precision of flying a formation aerobatic routine, as well as perform uh, the solos uh, perform high speed, low speed, and um, uh, uh, opposing passes with that, that work out to be some really awesome um, photography shots i suppose or or photo opportunities if you can get the jets just right it it looks like they're going to hit each other and and they don't it's it's all an illusion they are separated uh by usually about 50 to 75 feet they're just on the right side or left side of the runway um but it it it, it's thrilling in how they make it look like something's going to happen but if you were actually in the jet you would be able to clearly see no we're not going to hit each other Got it. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of... Hold on. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six. They're the pilots. Uh Seven is the narrator and, like, the team coordinator. So seven flies a two-seat jet around the country with usually the flight surgeon or maybe the boss or whoever's going out uh, to inspect all the show sites for that coming year. Flight surgeon? Yes, so they also the Blue Angels also have a flight surgeon. Uh, if they're sick or they need anything, the Got doc it. is there to take care of them. Got it. Uh, as well as each aircraft probably has four or five crew members to it. Then you have Fat Albert, which is the United States Marine Corps C-130. And it's down for maintenance right now. They're building a brand new Fat Albert, but... That C-130 has a crew of two pilots, a flight engineer, you got a loadmaster, and there's probably a couple other people that are in the back. Then you've got all your ground support personnel for them, all your mechanics that support the jet. So really, in all, the the actual size of the Blue Angels team may be more like 50 people. It's not just those six pilots. Mm-hmm. It's all of the support staff. It's all these enlisted members. It's all these other officers that are that are in charge of making sure that 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 team is able to perform that demonstration and uh, it's really spectacular to see so if you ever get to see the blue angels you'll see all these other uh, all these other service members uh, supporting them and they're all still wearing the blue suits they are all still blue angels even if they're not uh, performing a pilot function got it but at any given time there are really only less than a dozen actual blue angel pilots okay so uh, yeah active I mean, this is not like one of those things where, where it's like Santa Claus, where like you know you can you can strap on a red suit, show up in, at a uh, at a at a mall, no. and all of a sudden you're you're able to represent what that is, right? I, I didn't know if it was a a label that was easily passed around, or if it is a specific core group of people. No, it is a highly competitive application process uh, where you are vetted the 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 members who are selected from squadrons. They then um, join the the team still in their regular military clothes they're not blue angels yet as they go through the application process they get to uh, go on the road with the team see what the life is like and uh, you are typically on the team for three years and a flying member will spend the first year generally not flying learning the role learning the ropes learning what's going on and then they will spend the next two years in the flying position actually flying the jet and performing the demonstration and even then you could have people moving uh like number two may move to four four may move to five or six uh and and you may have some some fluctuation in in that uh in that regard as well and i'm not happens, exactly an expert on all no that, that's but, fine but you know you seem to know a lot about this stuff what happens after year three then do they retire from the blue angels at that point 
Yeah, essentially, uh, you return to the fleet. Um, you, I suppose, are then still always a, a blue angel. It's one of those things mm-hmm. that once you've got it, and you can uh, share some of that experience back with uh, the people in your fleet and try to try to uh, share the experience to make them better pilots too. And I have seen some videos online of um, pilots that return to the fleet. There's a specific pass where an F-18 and an F-14 are doing uh, formation fly by the carrier, and the F-14 is upright, and the F-18 is inverted with the nose stuck in between the vertical stabilizers of the F-14, hmm. and his spacing is about a foot and a half. The F-18 spacing is about a foot and a half. So uh, imagine the top gun shot where yeah. the canopy to canopy with a MiG-28, which is not a real airplane, and this guy's pretty much actually doing it inside the vertical stab of the of the 14 and it's it's a pretty impressive shot and i wouldn't necessarily trust um anybody else other than a a a member of the blue angels who's returning to the fleet to perform it it's it's just a high level of precision that's required to, to pull that off i have one question and one statement sure my question is, and this, you, you brought this up when you mentioned the diamond. So you've got pilots one, two, three, and four in diamond formation. Is that proper term? Yes. Diamond formation. Okay. And then you've got the solo pilots five and six off to each side. Um, so with aerobatics, are there, are there patterns that you can only fly when you're soloing? So for example, if you're in a diamond formation, can you do a hammerhead? Can you do an aileron roll? Can you do a loop? Can you do all of these things that can you spin like all of these things that you and I have done in the decathlon in the past, some of them anyway, um, you know, can you do though all of those while in formation or some of them only restricted to solo? Uh, the answer to that is yes and no. Okay. Um, with separation, you can pretty much do anything that the aircraft is capable of. And with proper planning and training, there is a way to do everything that you have described. Do the Blue Angels do that? No, they don't spin the jets. Um, They're not doing hammerheads either. In fact, there's only one display that I've ever seen of a jet doing a hammerhead, and I would... I would have to do some research. It would take me a little bit to find the video of this thing. Um, it's just not something that they typically do. Is it just the body of the of the airplane can't handle it, or no? It's a, a hammerhead's a very low G maneuver. It, gotcha. it probably comes down more to um, disturbing airflow into the engines and and causing a flame out. Um, but I don't know that much about jet aerobatics. However, the uh, there was a. a formation aerobatics team a husband and wife team called the french connection that they used to do formation aerobatics and one of the things that they did was a formation hammerhead and uh, unfortunately i believe that's also how they died is they ran into each other on the hammerhead and um, they weren't wearing parachutes um i i can't necessarily explain that mindset but um isn't that we lost if you're solo doing aerobatics, you do not. You are not required to wear a parachute. If there's more than one person on board the aircraft, you are required to wear a parachute. Uh, this was also the early '90s. I'm not sure what the law was back then, but uh, my mentor John Dye was actually invited to uh, work with the French Connection just before they had their accident, their fatal accident, and um, it's, it's a shame that we lost the, a fantastic team. Uh, some people who were, were very good in the aviation industry, and they were very good people. Um, 
but we can learn from from them and go okay all right let's look at let's analyze the how and the why let's look at what we can do to prevent that let's wear our parachutes let's let's be a little more uh, uh let's be a little more safety conscious and why is it that if you're dual you need a parachute but if you're solo you don't well, I, I I don't want to put words in the FAA's mouth, but the way that I kind of describe it is um, if you kill yourself, it's not as bad as if you took someone with you. Got you. Yeah. And, and but if, that so may not if be you're the dual, then both people that. have to wear parachutes? Yes. If you're dual, yes. both people have to wear parachutes. If there's more than one person on board the aircraft, you, you, everybody has to have a parachute on. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Anything else from the air show? Well, if I had flown to that air show, it would have been a cross country. And that's what you and I did. Nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe that I broke a record earlier this week. There's got to be some sort of record. In 36 hours, I did three round trips from Boston to Provincetown and back uh, via essentially three different methods of transportation. Oh, and- yeah. <laughs> you really screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> so Rob and I were flying Tuesday morning, and we had planned on also flying Wednesday out to Provincetown, um, Boston to Provincetown. And what's challenging about that is you fly, hopefully, a little bit through the Bravo to gain some altitude. And then you're up high uh, out over the water. reason you want to be up high is that you have two options. Actually, you have three options, right? We can be up high uh, within gliding distance of land at any given time. We could have hugged the coast, uh, which if anybody looks at Cape Cod, it's basically a, a horseshoe. A horseshoe, or, yeah, almost. Semi-circle. Yeah, kind of go out of your way to hug the coast. It's very pretty. It takes a little bit longer. Um, a lot longer. Or you can remain a little bit lower, but you need things like flotation devices and things like that. And so, a pyrotechnic and device. pyrotechnic devices. Um, and I, I left that at home in my pyrotechnic device closet. So uh, It's did, a lockbox. <laughs> we didn't have that at the time. So the decision was to go up high. So we were at 5,500 AGL going out to Provincetown and 6,500 AGL coming back from Provincetown. The record that I feel like I broke was that on Tuesday morning, we flew Norwood to Provincetown and back. And then on Wednesday morning... Now, the reason we went Tuesday morning was because you hadn't flown... True. ...since, like, February. And it's funny. You like you, you were very nice and gentle about that. Oh, we should do a little dress rehearsal on this. <laughs> oh, we're going to have your girlfriend in the back of the airplane? Yeah, let's not make her sick. Let's go practice. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. No, it was great. Yeah. Wednesday, we did the same thing again, this time with my girlfriend in the backseat. Really smooth flight. It was great. Uh, winds were a little bit calmer then. If you'd like to see what the winds were like on Tuesday, check out our YouTube. And there's a little video on there about a minute and a half long that kind of gives you a brief introduction to uh, our windy experience on Tuesday. But anyway, so uh, we come back on Wednesday afternoon after dropping my girlfriend off. And then I get the idea of... Yeah, no, I kind of want to go back to (laughs) P-Town. So I realized there's a a ferry leaving in about 45 minutes. So I parked the car. I had to do a bunch of things dog related and getting changes of clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Did you take Um, Zoe? uh, I did not take Zoe. I took took Zoe out. So Zoe could have come on the ferry, which is awesome. And by the way, the ferry is amazing. Um, But not as good as an airplane. Yeah, there's there's a there was a thing on our Instagram. I think it was just our story. I'll have to actually make a post about it. It looked like the ferry at one point was racing a seven four seven, which is pretty cool. Lufthansa. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that the ferry lost that race. 
uh, it was like 32 knots to, to about, th- what, 300 plus? Depending on his altitude. Yeah. <laughs> so then I took the ferry out to P-Town, spent the night on a couch. My neck was not very happy the next day. Um, but then took a car back to Boston the following morning. So then you drove the long way around the Cape. With friends. They were driving. Oh, they were driving. Yeah. Right. But in, a peri- in, a, in literally a period of 48 hours, I flew to P-Town, flew back, flew to P-Town, flew back, took a ferry to P-Town, drove back. In a period of 24 hours, <laughs> I flew there, flew ferried. back, ferried there, drove back. Ugh. So the only thing I was missing was was train. But, but did you get on the really, subway at all? There's no trains that you didn't go get on the subway. Come, yeah, no, no. no okay. But it was me. Actually, which leads me to my next point, which is from what I understand, the BU Bridge. This could just be a rumor. You know, people should look this up. The BU Bridge is like one of the only places where a boat can be underneath a train, which can be underneath a car which can be underneath an airplane because it's a river above the river is a train track that crosses underneath a auto bridge. And then there's airplanes above all the time. So I'm sure at some point in history, you had a boat underneath a train underneath a car underneath a plane underneath the international space station. Oh, underneath the Right. I'm sure at some point, what are you doing? The Inception theme. I think you get to play like three seconds or something. So you're done. Done. Everybody knows what it is. Okay. So I've never seen that movie. Let, what? I've never seen that. Oh, movie. I have. Anyway, so my biggest thing, the biggest challenge of this flight was one. Obviously, I got flight following right because it's always good to to get flight following, especially when you're going to be going near the Bravo and especially over water. Um, always good to have a flight plan filed too, even if you're flying VFR. And one of the biggest things is we just wanted to know, you know, where are we going to get clearance into the Bravo? Because the outer ring of the Bravo airspace pretty much ends where the water begins. And so if we had to remain below three or 4,000 feet at that point, we would have had to do something to climb up to 5,500 feet, you know, because we obviously wanted to be at that altitude when we were out over the water so that we always remained within gliding distance. So both flights on Tuesday and Wednesday, we were cleared into the Bravo up to 5,500 feet. That's not something that the controllers had to give us because we were flying VFR, but they were nice enough on both days to give us that clearance. Yeah, the boss controllers are great. Yep. It's probably some of the best uh, best controllers in the world. Yeah, they're yeah. awesome. Except for um, when I was looking to get flight following, I, I hopped on uh, the ground controller of the airport we were departing from and said, Norad Ground, Skyhawk 53569 with request. You don't want me to sing, do you? No, thank you, 569. We're looking for a flight following Norwood out to Provincetown, 5,500 feet. <laughs> I lost it. I, just, I was not it was expecting so that. It's hilarious. It's like, uh, all right, it's always, it's always good when they have a little bit of sense of humor. I mean, yeah. and then, uh, you know, I had to go around on the landing because uh, I wasn't used to the smaller runway. Yeah, you got caught by an illusion. Caught by an illusion. Uh, was up too high and I started my. Um, no, the other way around. No, actually, I was sorry. I was too low and I, because I started my downwind to base. Uh, but you thought you were high. I thought I was high. Because the runway is smaller. And so what you would normally see the 7,000-foot runway at Hanscom, um, 
if it would if it normally looked like what this little runway looked like over at p-town you would be very high in the air or very far away and unfortunately that wasn't the case so a 3500 foot runway compared to a 75 uh, a 7000 foot runway uh, you're going to think that you're a lot further away and a lot higher and you're going to start that descent trying to get the airplane down to make the sight picture look like what you're like what you're used to and unfortunately that put you way too low and you made the right decision to go around come back to try it again now knowing what everything looked like and having recalibrated your brain and that's typically something that we see and we want our student pilots to experience so it doesn't bite them someday when they're on their own without the cfi on board yeah nice job yeah it was fun and the return home was just as uneventful and educational um I would say for those of you out there that have been flying for a while and then don't fly for three to six months, the things that got me were uh, were winds. Um, so I'm I'm used to flying in winds and have done that with Rob numerous times, but uh, trying to figure out, okay, the wind direction is out of my left. So when I turn base, I'm going to have a tailwind. Okay. So I'm going to have to say just all that stuff. You, you, you lose that a little bit after a few months and it doesn't come as natural. At least it didn't come as natural to me. And I had to think a little bit more than usual being a little rusty with, with being smooth. I think y'all control was okay in general. I know you had mentioned that the, the wings were rocking here and there a little bit. And it, had I controlled that a little more actively and, and a lot of that might've been due to the, it was the, just turbulence, yeah. yeah. It was just uh, how you react to it and, and be, being positive with the with a correction as soon as you feel the airplane start to go or as soon as you see the airplane start to go. Whatever you whatever motion you detect that you don't want, work to eliminate it, and uh, that will result in a very smooth flight that is... I mean, it, it'll be work for you, the pilot, but the passengers won't know that anything was anything else was going on because you worked to dampen all of the disturbances of the air. And uh, that's what'll help keep them from getting sick. That's one of the things that'll help keep them from getting sick. The other thing was we made sure that she ate right before right. we put her on the airplane. And get didn't only have right. coffee in her stomach and nothing yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. Actually get some food in there. Your, your body needs blood sugar to function. If you don't eat, you will get hypoglycemic and I guarantee you throw up. So ignore any of the advice you've ever had about don't eat before you go flying. You want an empty stomach so you don't throw up. No, you will be experiencing the most excruciating uh, cramping because your body's trying to get poison out of you that there's there's nothing there and uh yeah that's it's so much worse to, to i love having a donut before i fly that's yeah donuts best. are great yeah, yeah. especially Spike the blood sugar those good old days where you brought donuts in yep. what happened rob that was two thousand dollars a year couldn't <laughs> afford it <laughs> all right anyway. core questions and then we're gonna wrap up so number one today do pilots feel nervous during takeoff landing or turbulence oh yeah that's why we drink no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh goodness! Oh man! Oh, that's a quote oh, that's, that's going to come back to haunt me. Uh, I wouldn't. So, Rob, yeah. this is your seventh interview with us, but we reviewed your podcast episode nine <laughs> from seven years ago, and you were claiming that you drank during taxi takeoff and landing. Can you tell us a little more about that? <laughs> yeah. Eight hours bottled of throttle, yep. folks. Um, there is a heightened sense of awareness. Um, I can really only speak to me personally. I can't speak to other pilots. There are some pilots out there who are nervous flyers. And uh, I think that's very interesting. And mainly that is because they haven't experienced the actual limits of the airplane. They're, they, um, 
are not confident in their abilities. They don't know what the airplane is capable of, and they haven't seen enough weather conditions to um, know that, oh, yeah, this is fine. Oh, this is fine. Oh, this is fine. And um, it's, it's, it's up to them to open up and be honest with an experienced CFI to go out there and actually get the experience in a safe environment. Uh, that's where I see pilots being nervous. And um, that may not be the the popular information to give, but that's what I've seen. No, that's good. It's good. What would happen if a plane flew too high? Well, so when Rob and I were flying the Cessna 172, we were. Uh, it was a hotter day than normal, so density altitude was a little. It was like two thousand feet. So when we were up climbing to five thousand five hundred feet. The plane felt like it was at seven thousand five hundred feet, where the air is obviously thinner than the ground level, and so. I noticed that the the performance had started dropping uh, as we were climbing and you start to, you know, release back pressure, right? To be able to continue to climb. To maintain a rate. To maintain the rate of climb. Actually, so it's not necessarily a a release in back pressure. It would, it would be the adjusting the trim. Yeah. It'd be the other way around. You would, you would actually need to pitch. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Because what's happening there is it's a multifaceted attack on the performance of the airplane. As the air gets less dense, the propeller is less efficient because the air is thinner and that's what it moves is air. The engine is losing power because it can't burn as much fuel. It can't extract as much energy out of the fuel because it doesn't have as much air and then the wing is getting less efficient because the air is thinner and it like it likes nice thick cold air and we were getting into thinner and thinner air the density right. altitude was was going up and up and up now this does have some advantages for when we fly the 206 so when we fly the 206 the propeller is adjustable and it takes a bigger and bigger bite of the thinner and thinner air and it's the engine is turbocharged so it continues to develop sea level power as the air gets thinner and thinner and thinner so we don't lose power we don't lose thrust but we need to move faster through the thinner air to hit the same indicated air speeds and that's where our true airspeed goes way way up so when we flew back from D.C. New Year's 2016, 2015, 2016, we were up at 11,500, indicating 150 knots and truing out at 180. The airplane was hauling the mail through the air because that air was so thin, uh, we had to move faster through it to feel the same force against the airplane in the form mm-hmm. of parasite drag or in the uh, in the form of dynamic pressure, which is just a fancy word for air speed. And that's where we get back to the beginning of the podcast where I talk about Felix Baumgartner in free fall, supersonic. To him, he only felt like he was only 140 miles an hour, but... He was moving through the air at close to 600 miles an hour because the air, the air was so thin. Uh, it took him moving through it at 600 to feel like he was doing 140. All right, final question. Go. Would an earthquake affect an airplane flying? Um, no. And the only extreme case I could see there is uh, ground effects <laughs> taking off. Not even there. Um, like you would have to, you would have to have such a massive seismic event that you created a pressure wave in the air, um, and it, the seismic event would have to be on the on the magnitude of a bomb blast. Got it. Um, 
to, to create a pressure wave. So got it. no, that wouldn't really mess with you uh, unless it caused the volcanic eruption. And then you got volcanic ash, which is very bad stuff. Don't fly through volcanic ash. Got it. All right. Well, that's episode nine, folks. Um, so please be sure to check us out on iTunes, <laughs> Google Play, uh, plaintalkpodcast.com. If you want to email us, podcast at plaintalkpodcast.com. We've got, we're on Spotify. We've got Twitter, Plain Talk PC, Instagram, Plain Talk PC, Facebook, Plain Talk Podcast, YouTube, Plain Talk Podcast. Although you have to search us, that's not actually the name of our channel. And uh, yeah, see you episode 10. All right. Fly safe. That's different. Chickity China, the Chinese chicken. You got a drumstick in your brain. Stop sticking. Watching X-Files with no lights on, with LMAs on. I hope the smoke man's in this one. Well, like Harrison Ford, I'm getting frantic. Like Stingham Tantric. Like Snickers Guaranteed to Satisfy. Like Kurosawa, I make mad films. Can't make films. But if I did, they'd have, have a samurai. Can you set a bit of clips of your mom kind of tiny nubs just on my arms and always flying off the backswing? Get into with Sailor Moon because that cartoon has got the boom in it. Maybe it made me think the wrong thing. You don't know that part? I know that. How can I help it if I think you're funny? <laughs> <laughs>